0: Welcome to Beautiful Possibility, the creative process journal of Jillian Jacob Keezer. That's me. I created this for all stuck, hopeful, and aspiring creatives everywhere. You are not alone. The truth is, perfectionism grabbed me sometime in adolescence and halted my creative journey for many years. Today, my desire to create is stronger than my fear. So I created this podcast as my day-to-day account of getting unstuck and into motion. In this audio journal, I'll take you along on my process of unblocking and relearning how to find joy, courage, and fulfillment in creating. I always say the only place to start is exactly where you are. So let's begin. I'm so happy you're here today. Today is a little bit of a special treat. I want to read to you. I hope that sounds good to you. I want to read to you from one of my favorite books of the last couple of years. It's called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. If anyone out there is <laughs> has read all of the time and productivity literature and still doesn't feel like (laughs) your life is on the tracks the way that those books promised it might be, I think this will be a real delight for you. Um, I loved this book. I would heartily recommend it. This is uh, written by a fellow who was a journalist, wrote about productivity and time management for a long time. He's British, so he's got a really good sense of humor. This book is sort of a philosophical book about time, targeted at people who have consumed a lot of the, uh, the tomes of the productivity literature. <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, so this section that I want to read to you is from a, a chapter that talks about the provisional life, by which he means feeling like your life will start once you finally figure a few last things out. <laughs> I say with a wink. Um, you know, once you finally clear your inbox, figure out the right you know daily calendaring routine, and you know get this sort of educational thing under your belt, or get this business off the ground, then you can you know really relax and enjoy. And so, <laughs> this this is a section. It's called Five Questions. He says even to ask them with sincerity is to have begun to come to grips with the reality of your situation and to start to make the most of your finite time. This book is all about this concept of finitude, which I've talked about here on the podcast. I talk about on my Instagram. I grabbed that word from Berkman. So I'm excited to to read to you more of his work. It's all about getting into... The now from a very philosophical over intellectual, maybe standpoint, like if if be here now (laughs) as a bumper sticker just doesn't quite work for you, I think you're going to really enjoy this and enjoy his work. Okay, here goes. Here are the five questions he asks to reflect on for your own life in terms of making the most of your current state of being your current time. Number one, where in your life or work are you currently pursuing comfort when what's called for is a little discomfort? And the description goes on. Pursuing the life projects that matter to you the most will almost always entail not feeling fully in control of your time, immune to the painful assaults of reality, or confident about the future. It means embarking on ventures that might fail, perhaps because you'll find you lack sufficient talent It means risking embarrassment, holding difficult conversations, disappointing others, and getting so deep into relationships that additional suffering, when bad things happen to those you care about, is all but guaranteed. And so we naturally make decisions about our daily use of time that prioritize anxiety avoidance instead. Procrastination, distraction, commitment phobia, clearing the decks, that means like clearing out all your emails, getting the house clean before you do anything else, and taking on too many projects at once are always ways of trying to maintain the illusion that you're in charge of things. In a subtler way, so too is compulsive worrying, which offers its own gloomy but comforting sense that you're doing something constructive to try to stay in control. James Hollis recommends asking of every significant decision in life, does this choice diminish me or enlarge me? The question circumvents the urge to make decisions in the service of alleviating anxiety and instead helps you make contact with your deeper intentions for your time. If you're trying to decide whether to leave a given job or relationship, say, or to redouble your commitment to it, asking what would make you happiest is likely to lure you toward the most comfortable option or else leave you paralyzed by indecision. But you usually know intuitively whether remaining in a relationship or job would present the kind of challenges that will help you grow as a person, enlargement, or the kind that will cause your soul to shrivel with every passing week, diminishment. Choose uncomfortable enlargement over comfortable diminishment whenever you can. Question two, are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? One common symptom of the fantasy of someday achieving total mastery over time is that we set ourselves inherently impossible targets for our use of it. Targets that must always be postponed into the future, since they can never be met in the present. The truth is that it's impossible to become so efficient and organized that you could respond to a limitless number of incoming demands. It's usually equally impossible to spend what feels like enough time on your work, and with your children, and on socializing, traveling, or engaging in political activism. But there's a deceptive feeling of comfort in believing that you're in the process of constructing such a life, which is due to come into being any day now. What would you do differently with your time today if you knew in your bones that salvation was never coming, that your standards had been unreachable all along, and that you'll therefore never manage to make time for all you hoped you might. Perhaps you're tempted to object that yours is a special case, that in your particular situation you do need to pull off the impossible, time-wise, in order to avert catastrophe. For example, maybe you're afraid you'll be fired and lose your income if you don't stay on top of your impossible workload. But this is a misunderstanding. If the level of performance you're demanding of yourself is genuinely impossible, then it's impossible even if catastrophe looms, and facing this reality can only help. There is a sort of cruelty, Ido Landau points out, in holding yourself to standards nobody could ever reach, and which many of us would never dream of demanding of other people. The more humane approach is to drop such efforts as completely as you can. Let your impossible standards crash to the ground. Then pick a few meaningful tasks from the rubble and get started on them today. Question three, in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? A closely related way to postpone the confrontation with finitude, with the anxiety-inducing truth that this is it, is to treat your present-day life as part of a journey towards becoming the kind of person you believe you ought to become in the eyes of society or religion or your parents, whether or not they're still alive. Once you've earned your right to exist, you tell yourself, life will stop feeling so uncertain and out of control. In times of political and environmental crisis, this mindset often takes the form of the belief that nothing is truly worth doing with your time except addressing such emergencies head-on, around the clock, and that you're entirely correct to think of yourself as guilty and selfish for spending it on anything else. This quest to justify your existence in the eyes of some outside authority can continue long into adulthood. But, quote, at a certain age, end quote, writes the psychotherapist Stephen Cope, quote, it finally dawns on us, shockingly, no one really cares what we're doing with our life. This is a most unsettling discovery to those of us who have lived someone else's life and eschewed our own. No one really cares except us. End quote. The attempt to attain security by justifying your existence, it turns out, was both futile and unnecessary all along. Futile because life will always feel uncertain and out of your control. And unnecessary because, in consequence, there's no point in waiting to live until you've achieved validation from someone or something else. Peace of mind and an exhilarating sense of freedom comes not from achieving the validation but from yielding to the reality that it wouldn't bring you security even if you got it. I'm convinced in any case that it is from this position of not feeling as though you need to earn your weeks on the planet that you can do the most genuine good with them. Once you no longer feel the stifling pressure to become a particular kind of person, you can confront the personality, the strengths and weaknesses, the talents and enthusiasms you find yourself with here and now and follow where they lead. Perhaps your particular contribution to a world facing multiple crises isn't primarily to spend your time pursuing activism or seeking electoral office, but on caring for an elderly relative or making music or working as a pastry chef. The Buddhist teacher Susan Piver points out that it can be surprisingly radical and discomforting for many of us to ask how we'd enjoy spending our time. But at the very least, you shouldn't rule out the possibility that the answer to that question is an indication of how you might use your time best. Question four, in which areas of life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? It's easy to spend years treating your life as a dress rehearsal on the rationale that what you're doing for the time being is acquiring the skills and experience that will permit you to assume authoritative control of things later on. But I sometimes think of my journey through adulthood to date as one of incrementally discovering the truth that there is no institution, no walk of life in which everyone isn't just winging it all the time. Growing up, I assumed that the newspaper on the breakfast table must be assembled by people who truly do what they were doing. Then I got a job at a newspaper. Unconsciously, I transferred my assumptions of competence elsewhere, including to people who worked in government. But then I got to know a few people who did, and who would admit after a couple of drinks that their jobs involved staggering from crisis to crisis, inventing plausible sounding policies in the backs of cars en route to the press conferences at which those policies had to be announced. Even then, I found myself assuming that this might all be explained as a manifestation of the perverse pride the British people sometimes take in being shamblingly mediocre. Then I moved to America, where it turns out everyone is winging it too. Political developments in the years since have only made it clearer that the people in charge have no more command over world events than the rest of us do. It's alarming to face the prospect that you might never truly feel as though you know what you're doing in work, marriage, parenting, or anything else. But it's liberating too, because it removes a central reason for feeling self-conscious or inhibited about your performance in those domains in the present moment. If the feeling of total authority is never going to arrive, you might as well not wait any longer to give such activities your all, to put bold plans into practice, to stop erring on the side of caution. It is even more liberating to reflect that everyone else is in the same boat, whether they're aware of it or not. Question five. How would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? A final common manifestation of the desire for time mastery arises from the unspoken assumption described in an earlier chapter as the causal catastrophe. The idea that the true value of how we spend our time is always and only to be judged by the results. It follows naturally enough from this outlook that you should focus your time on those activities for which you expect to be around to see the results. But in his documentary, A Life's Work, the director David Licata profiles people who took another path, dedicating their lives to projects that almost certainly won't be completed within their lifetimes. Like the father and son team attempting to catalog every tree in the world's remaining ancient forests. And the astronomers scouring radio waves for signs of extraterrestrial life from her desk at the SETI Institute in California. All have the shining eyes of people who know they're doing things that matter and who relish their work precisely because they don't need to try to convince themselves that their own contributions will prove decisive or reach fruition while they're still alive. Yet there is a sense in which all work, including the work of parenting, community building, and everything else, has the quality of not being completable within our own lifetimes. All such activities always belong to a far bigger temporal context, with an ultimate value that will only be measurable long after we're gone, or perhaps never, since time stretches on indefinitely. And so it's worth asking, what actions, what acts of generosity or care for the world, what ambitious schemes or investments in the distant future might be meaningful to undertake today, if you could come to terms with never seeing the results? We're all in the position of medieval stonemasons, adding a few more bricks to a cathedral whose completion we know we'll never see. The cathedral still worth building all the same. All right, loves. I'll leave you with that. What would you think of it? I hope you loved it as much as I did and as much as I loved reading it to you. Again, I'll link the book in the show notes. It's a big recommend for me. And I'd love to hear what you think of it. Shoot me a message over on beautiful underscore possibility on the gram. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for walking this creative path with me. I'm so grateful to be learning with you. If you like the show, I'd love for you to share it with a fellow creative. And please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. For more day-to-day support and inspiration, join our creative community on Instagram at beautiful underscore possibility. The show is hosted by me, Jillian Jacob Keiser, and edited by Abby Circatella. The theme music is from Candelian. Until next time, just keep going.